you have a copy of God's Word, please turn again to Psalm 51, which will be the passage that we consider this morning, Psalm 51. Pastor Lai Chow read it a moment ago. We have just sung a paraphrase of Psalm 51. And as we are in a series this summer, as has been our custom every summer, uh, we return to the Psalms uh, for these months. And this morning, the Psalm we'll consider is Psalm 51. But before we do, let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Father, please come and help us now. Please speak through your word. We pray that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts, that we would be receptive to what you have revealed to us in Psalm 51. We pray that you would give us the right posture to receive your word as it is preached, and that you would be so kind as to open our minds, to open our eyes, to see our own sins, our own need of repentance, and more than that, our need of a Savior. And may we find Him even in this message this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I assume that many here would be familiar with the context of Psalm 51. If you're familiar with uh, the larger story of David's life, David who wrote this psalm, David the king of Israel. Uh, But I'll remind you of some of the context leading up to this psalm. Uh, David has committed terrible sin against the Lord. Uh, One day, as David is walking along the roof of his house, he catches a glimpse of Bathsheba as she bathes. This is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11. And David covets her in his heart, he lusts after her in his heart, and he eventually takes her and he lies with her. Uh, He then has her husband Uriah killed, and all of this David does in secret. And yet we read in 2 Samuel 11 verse 27 at the end of this account, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Then in chapter 12, God confronts David through Nathan the prophet. Uh, Nathan tells David uh, the story of a poor man and a rich man, a poor man who had but one precious lamb and a rich man who had many lambs. And as the story goes, when the rich man was entertaining company, rather than present to his visitors uh, one of his many lambs, he steals the one lamb from the poor man to give to his guests. And after David hears the story, he himself says that such a man, the man who did this thing, ought to be put to death. And it's then in verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 12 that Nathan utters his famous line to David. He says, you are the man. In other words, this was something of a parable uh, describing what it is that David himself was guilty of. Well, Psalm 51, which we've turned to this morning, represents David's repentance over the egregious sin he had committed. David writes Psalm 51 after committing great sin against God. And moreover, we know that after David sinned, after he slept with Bathsheba, after he killed Uriah, her husband, the Hittite, that after these acts were committed, there were some months that passed, some months of hiding before David came clean, because we learn in the narrative in 2 Samuel that Bathsheba actually conceived, was pregnant, and bore a son by David, all before this encounter with Nathan 
the prophet. And now, in 2 Samuel 12, David's sin is finally exposed. After great and flagrant sin before the face of God and after months of hiding from the Lord, David's sin is revealed to him. And it is after this exposure that God brings David to a place of repentance. And it is in Psalm 51 where we get the clearest glimpse into what that process of repentance looked like for David. Now, we should acknowledge there are many elements to David's story that are singular and unique. Nonetheless, I do believe that David's repentance in Psalm 51 represents us, or excuse me, presents us with something of a pattern for what repentance should look like when we sin. Of course, not all of our sins or even most of our sins are of the same character as David's sin before God in 2 Samuel 11. Nonetheless, all of our sins require genuine repentance, and Psalm 51 shows us, I think, what genuine repentance looks like. So I want us to consider this morning the pattern for repentance offered to us in Psalm 51, and I'd like to present it under six headings this morning. And the first is this. Number one, David comes to God with the humble expectation that God will receive him. David comes to God with the humble expectation that God will receive him. Now, as I said already, David's sin was indeed great in the eyes of the Lord. Through the prophet Nathan, God exposed David's sin in the most sudden and confrontational manner. And this was deliberate on God's part as He exposed David's sin. And we read, you don't need to turn there, but we read in that account in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan says this, speaking to David for the Lord, verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. In other words, God is going to chastise David. There will be discipline for David in this. And this is a sobering reminder that often our sins in this life do bear with them very real consequences. But as you hear those words from the prophet Nathan, imagine putting yourself in David's shoes. You have sinned greatly in God's eyes. You've been hiding for some number of months, and now you hear this indictment from God through the prophet Nathan. What would be your response? How would you receive that word from Nathan? You can imagine how this would have pierced David's heart. The realization of his terrible wickedness and the seriousness and the gravity of the discipline that was indeed coming from the Lord. What do you think was going on in David's heart and mind as he heard those words I read a moment ago? It's possible he even had a physiological reaction. Perhaps his palms became sweaty. He began to break out into cold sweats. Uh, Perhaps his mouth became dry. Perhaps Uh, His stomach sinks within him. He begins to feel nauseous with the realization of the wickedness of his sin and the fact that this sin was carried out coram deo before the face of God. 
What shame. What conviction. Perhaps even some measure of despair came over him. I mean, put yourself in David's shoes. How would you react if your sin was exposed in this manner and you came to realize that God has seen your sin? But then, in the account of 2 Samuel 12, we read this in verse 13. David said to Nathan, it's the first words David utters, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. It was revealed to David that though his sin was so great, though he committed terrible wickedness in the eyes of God, no great shame and humiliation would be his as a result of his sin, God was ready to be merciful to David and to put away his sin, to forgive him and to hide his sin from view. And this is why in Psalm 51, David could come to God with humble expectation and say these words in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Even at the end of the psalm, if you look down at verse 17, David says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, David has the humble expectation that if I come to God in true brokenness and penitence over my sin, He will not push me away. I know that He will receive me. In other places, In the Old Testament, this truth is revealed as well. Isaiah 66 is a very well-known passage, and there the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one who I will approve. This is the one to whom I will have fellowship and relationship. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is of a broken and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. David had the humble confidence that God receives sinners. This had been revealed to David, and he knew this to be true in his own experience. David comes to God with the humble expectation that God will receive him because David knows God receives broken sinners who look to him for grace. And I think we, this side of the cross, brothers and sisters as New Covenant Christians, We know this to be true from another angle, don't we? Is it any surprise that when God came down and dwelt among us in the person of His own dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the image of the invisible God, who was the radiance of His glory, the exact imprint of His nature, is it any surprise that when Jesus Christ was with us, He said things like, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven, twenty-eight, 28. Or come to me, all you who thirst, John seven thirty-seven. Or blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, verse 2. Or the account in Luke 7, when, when the woman comes, she breaks into the house, and she's weeping, and she's ashamed, and she bows at Jesus' feet, and she weeps upon His feet, and she starts to wipe His feet with her tears and with her hair. What does Jesus say to her? 
your sins are forgiven you. Is it any surprise that when God revealed Himself as a man, when the Son came to disclose the heart of the Father, that we would find in Him a Savior ready to receive sinners? And even more justification to believe that God will receive all those who come to Him with humble confidence and brokenness of spirit. Well, that's the first thing to note about David's repentance here as a pattern for ours. David comes to God with the humble expectation that God will receive him. Secondly, David openly acknowledges his sin against God without excuse. David openly acknowledges his sin against God without excuse. In the narrative in 2 Samuel 12, 13, after David's sin has been exposed, the chastisement from the Lord has been announced. This is what David says, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's the only record of anything David has to say in this whole event. I have sinned against the Lord. David doesn't make excuses. He doesn't plead extenuating circumstances. He doesn't blame it on his parents or his upbringing. He doesn't say, well, you know what, uh, I've been obedient for the most part, so what if I indulge in a little bit of sin? After all, I've, I've followed Yahweh from my youth up. What is it to him if, 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 if I sin a little bit on the side? He doesn't say that. He doesn't make excuses. He says what all of us must say when confronted with the reality of our sin, I have sinned against the Lord. And in our text in Psalm 51, we see the same kind of candor. Verse 3, what does David say? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is possessed with an all-consuming awareness of his sinfulness. He says, my sin is ever before me. My sin is always before my view. He's further aware, verse 4, of the singular view of God on his life. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he's not saying, brothers and sisters, that he didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba, or even the nation of Israel as a representative of the nation, as the king of the nation. But he is saying this, in the grand scheme of things, at the judgment seat of God, the main issue is that I have sinned coram Deo. I have sinned before God's face, and He knows, He answers to God and God alone. What matters above all is that I have done what is evil in your sight. And let me just say, friends, when we sin, this is always the issue. I mean, regardless of how great or small the sin is and of what harm we have inflicted upon others, what makes sin so sinful and so egregious is that it is done in the plain view and sight of God against His law. And David has this awareness, and thus he says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. And he says, this is so, so that you may be justified in your words, verse 4, 
and blameless in your judgment. In other words, you are right and I am wrong. I answer to you, God, and I am accountable to you. And when you say over my life that I have done what is wicked, I say to you, you are right. You, God, are justified in your words, and you are right in your judgments. Your law is right, and I have failed to live it out. He says, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying this goes beyond an isolated episode in my life. I didn't just have a bad day. I have been a sinner from birth, even from conception, my entire life. My very nature is marred with sin. David openly acknowledges his sin against God without excuse. What remarkable candor, straightforwardness in confession. Before leaving this point, I just want to note how rare this is. To actually take responsibility for our actions and to acknowledge our wrong, not only before God, but even before one another. But brothers and sisters, it ought not to be so. To candidly and without excuse acknowledge our sins is what we must and ought to do. It is so simple and yet it is so right to come to God without making any excuses for ourselves, without trying to blame shift, without trying to somehow put the blame on someone else or somehow make excuses for ourselves, but to candidly and humbly acknowledge our sin before the Lord. There's no need for excuses. He knows us thoroughly. He knows all the dark crevices of our hearts. He knows our hidden sins, the the sins that we hide from others and try to hide from Him. And He also knows our sins that are hidden even from ourselves. We don't need to put on airs with God. He knows us thoroughly. We don't need to make excuses. It is ours only to candidly and openly acknowledge our sinfulness to God with the hope and expectation that He will receive us. Well, that's the second heading. Now consider with me thirdly. We've seen already David comes to God with humble expectation that God will receive him. Secondly, David openly acknowledges his sin against God without excuse. Now thirdly, David pleads for grace and forgiveness on the basis of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. David pleads for grace and forgiveness on the basis of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. Look again at verse 1. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David hopes to experience, he wants to experience grace and forgiveness from God. Upon what basis does he hope that he will receive it? Well, he doesn't look to his track record. I mean, how could he? Uh, He doesn't base it on his sincerity. He doesn't plead the justice of God. He knows his only hope is bound up in the fact that God is steadfast in His love and that God is abundant in His mercy. If you're familiar with David's story, you know that God had set His love on David. 
God had loved David before the foundations of the world. David was God's chosen and elect son. He would not withhold his love from David. His love for David was steadfast. That is to say, it would not falter. It would not fail. It would not be removed from David. God had sworn by Himself that He would not remove His steadfast love from His son, David. Friends, God is steadfast in His love toward His elect, and it is on the basis of His love that He will forgive us like David if we come to Him in repentance. But David also asked for grace and forgiveness on the basis of God's mercy. He says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David's hope could well be summarized by the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 verse 20. Do you know what Paul says there? That where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Where our sins were so abundant that they prevailed against us, that they overwhelmed us, that they rose up to our necks and above our chins and almost over our mouths such to overwhelm us. Where sin abounded, Paul says, grace abounded much more because God is a God who is abundant in mercy. And David needed the mercy of God in this instance to overwhelm and cover over all of his terrible sins. I wonder if you felt that way. Have you ever been in a period of your life before the Lord, in a worship service, or in your quiet time with God, you just feel so overwhelmed by your sins. You just recognize, I, I have sinned against God my whole life. I've done wicked things in the sight of God. You reflect perhaps on your past and maybe particular seasons where you were in rebellion against God, or maybe you just reflect on this past week, and you're just disillusioned with yourself and so discouraged at the sight of your sins, so much so that they make you ashamed. You feel like your sins are overwhelming you. They're drowning you. You need to hear this word from Psalm 51. There is no hope for sinners who feel that way, who know themselves to be sinners and know that their sins prevail against them. There's no hope for such people outside the abundant mercy of God. It is true, brothers and sisters, like it was with David, we too can hope that God's mercy will triumph over our sins. God's mercy will prove more abundant, stronger, greater than not just our greatest sin, but the totality of all our sins. Where our sins abound, grace abounds much more. You see, David believed the words of the song that we sing here. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. What? Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And so it is on the basis of the Lord's steadfast love and abundant mercy that He makes these entreaties. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. 
David knows he depends upon God and God alone to grant forgiveness and to bring about true repentance and heart change, and so he comes to God and pleads on the grounds of his love and mercy. And my friend, I say to you that God will also deal with you on these same grounds. Our only hope, brothers and sisters, is in the love and mercy of God. When confronted with our sins, when we see our transgressions against His law, the only hope that we have is that God will choose to be loving in our case, that God will be abundant in His mercy toward us. Where else are we going to go? Are we going to look at our track record? Are we going to plead our church membership? Are we going to profess that we'll do better next time? I mean, really, what hope do we have that God is going to hide our sins from view and that God is going to forgive us of our transgressions against Him? There is only hope found in the steadfast love and the abundant mercy of God. And it's important that you here outside of Christ recognize that. You here who are not Christians, who are not believers in the Lord Jesus, you need to recognize what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. We do not think our works or our efforts to do better or our good resolutions make us right before God. We are a collection of sinners who know ourselves to be vile and unworthy in the sight of God, and the only basis we have for any hope that heaven will be ours is because God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He has chosen to be merciful to sinners like us. There's no other hope found for sinners. And I promise you, if you come to Jesus Christ today, believe upon the provision He has made in His own dear Son, He will save you. I believe in that truth as much, even more strongly than the reality that this platform is not going to give way as I stand on it. I assure you on the basis of God's Word, in your case, if you feel and know yourself to be a sinner, if you want to be saved from your sins, if you want to become a follower of Jesus Christ and you go to God and you ask Him to forgive you, I assure you on the steady rock of God's Word, He'll have mercy on you. He will love you. He will forgive you. So it was in David's case and so it must be in ours. And of course, brothers and sisters, this side of the cross we know, where is the love and mercy of God most clearly demonstrated? We have more reasons than David had to know that God is loving and merciful. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have this side of the cross the most convincing proof that God is willing to be loving and merciful toward sinners like us. Well, now consider with me fourthly and more quickly. We've seen David comes to God with a humble expectation that God will receive him. Secondly, David openly acknowledges his sin against God without excuse. Number three, David pleads for grace and forgiveness on the basis of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. And now fourthly, and this is crucial to genuine and real repentance, David seeks restoration of fellowship with God. David seeks restoration of fellowship with God. This is a major theme in Psalm 51. David had been hiding for months and months and months. You imagine what was going on in David's mind and heart. I assume he was still going to 
the assembly of the Lord's people to worship. He was still performing the sacrifices. He was still thoughtful about God's Word in terms of trying to read the Scriptures. And yet, he's hiding. He's not being forward and open before the Lord about his sin. Well, David recognizes in Psalm 51 that though this great sin did not put him outside of God's covenant love and faithfulness, he senses, he knows, that it nonetheless fractured David's felt sense of fellowship and communion with God, of walking with God, of having joy in the salvation that God had given him. This joy was taken from him through his sin. Not the salvation itself. He was still God's chosen son. He was still within God's covenant love, but he was missing and lacking something of the warmth of fellowship that he had known in earlier days when he walked in open repentance before the Lord. In Psalm 32, we got our assurance of pardon this morning from Psalm 32. That psalm also has in view David's sin with Bathsheba. And we read this in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. You don't need to turn there. But David says in that psalm, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. And day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What is David saying? Well, though still the Lord's child and still in covenant with God, David nonetheless experienced alienation and distance from God. He lacked the warmth of God's nearness and presence, and he longed for a restoration of fellowship and closeness with God. And so in Psalm 51, if you look again at our text, he says in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Friends, one of the worst things about our sins as the children of God is that they drive a wedge in our relationship with God. We, though saved and though the Lord's children, can experience distance from God. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably know what I'm talking about, the feeling that God is far from us, that God is distant, that something of the joy of fellowship and communion with God is lacking. But one of the sweetest things, friends, about true repentance is that it brings with it restoration of communion, restoration of fellowship, a restoration of all the sweetness and tenderness and warmth that we experience in our relationship with the Lord. It's important you're clear on, on what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. We cannot, as the children of God, through our sins, somehow put ourselves outside the sphere of God's saving love. Nonetheless, as those called to walk with God as His children, as His people, we can, as believers, as Christians, as those who are united to Christ, experience alienation and distance, a lack of fellowship, a lack of closeness with God. You might think of it, some of you who have uh, teenagers, uh, you might think as, as uh, your teenager's dad or, or mom or whatever, 
Uh, you, you have loved this child. You have poured your life into this child. You have experienced wonderful days and sweet blessings with and through this child, and the child is growing up, and you have such a wonderful relationship. But at some point in the teenage years, they become a little more closed off, and they begin to decide they don't really love mom and dad's rules. And you might have a particular teenager who begins to live in certain subtle forms of rebellion. You know, and, and, and you might think it might grieve your heart as the parent of that child. You know, I, I remember when my son used to be so open with me. We, we, used to, we used to talk at length about life, and he would share, my daughter would share, and, and there was no secrets between us, but now he or she seems closed off. And there's some breach in our fellowship together. There's some breach of our closeness together. Well, has that child ceased to be your child? Of course not. But there's some impediment to closeness and to warmth and to fellowship. And what do you want to happen in the heart of that young person? You want them to be open once again with you, to share if there's some way they've sinned or if there's some way they've broken your word, or if there's some way they've breached your trust, you want them to be open with you, to enjoy the restoration of fellowship and closeness. There may be consequences for infractions, but nonetheless, you desire a restoration of that nearness and closeness and fellowship with your teenager. Well, similarly, as the Lord's children, we can walk at seasons and at times in such a way when we're not being open with God where we're not living in accord with His Word as we ought, where we're not keeping in step with His law and His ways. And at such times, what is needed is to once again come to God with an open face. Lord, I have nothing to hide from You. You see everything. I want to experience again the closeness and warmth of fellowship that we once had together. And I recognize that my sins have introduced fracture and do our fellowship and in our communion. I come to you openly now confessing my sins, and I ask, restore to me now the joy of your salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. I want to go back to the beginning. I want to go back to when I walked with you with an open face. David is saying this to the Lord, restore me. Let me begin again. Bring me again to the place of gladness and joy in your presence. I don't want to hide anymore. I want to walk in open-faced fellowship with you. And of course, he knows that God is more than happy to grant it to him. David seeks restoration of fellowship with God. Now, number five, David resolves to walk in righteousness and to teach others to do the same. I need to be a little more brief here, but David resolves to walk in righteousness to teach others to do the same. David says in verse 13, as he has repented and as he's asked for restoration, he says, then, verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. It's almost like David views the completion of forgiveness coming to its final conclusion in David now moving from the standpoint of his own repentance and his own forgiveness and seeking to teach others who, like him, have sinned and fallen and struggled. Just a brief aside and word of encouragement for those of us here who are aware of great sin in our past and in our lives. God is pleased to redeem those experiences. 
And God is pleased to use us in the lives of our brothers and sisters to help them not to stumble and not to fall. And when they have sinned, to show them and to tell them the way back to the Lord. You may think because you have done this or because you have done that, that disqualifies you from speaking the truth to your brothers and sisters. You know, I I really can't talk to them about their sin. Well, take encouragement and comfort from this word from David. He knew he had failed so greatly in the eyes of God. He had sinned so terribly and egregiously before the face of the Lord. But part of his repentance is to say, Lord, now I want the opportunity. I will pursue the opportunity to teach sinners your ways. When, when others sin and stumble and fall, I want to tell them what you are like. And I want to tell them there's no good reason to hide from the Lord. Be open with your sin before God. And I can tell you, I can assure you, God will restore you. God will forgive you. He will be steadfast in His love and abundant in His mercy. Lord, I want the opportunity to teach sinners your ways. Brother and sister, whatever that thing is that you're so ashamed of, God can use it in your life to help others, to teach sinners the ways of the Lord. Well, now, sixthly and finally, sixthly and finally, let me repeat the points. This is a wordier outline than normal for me. David comes to God with the humble expectation that God will receive him. David openly acknowledges his sin against God without excuse. Thirdly, David pleads for grace and forgiveness on the basis of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. Number four, David seeks restoration of fellowship with God. Number five, David resolves to walk in righteousness and to teach others to do the same. And sixthly and finally, David makes his penitence the context for worship. David makes his penitence the context for worship. Please look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is why it's so important what we often say here, that we really do believe it, that we are a gathering of redeemed sinners. We come into the worship of God cognizant of, conscious of our sins and our failings. God does not despise the one who comes to Him in brokenness and contrition. God wants us to come in that posture. When we have sinned against Him, He invites us to come to Him in true penitence. And our penitence, our repentance, our contrition And the assurance that He will forgive us becomes the context, the breeding ground for worship. This is why we at our church have a prayer of confession and an assurance of pardon. 
Because we want one of the prevailing themes in our worship gatherings to be that we are sinners, that we have sinned against God, that we depend on His grace and His forgiveness, and we believe that in the gospel through Christ, we have received it. That is how God wants us to come, looking to Him for grace. He is not impressed with us. We could come to Him with all of the same forms, but He is not impressed with us if we come into His worship pleading our righteousness and our good works and our good track record and I'm unstained from the world and I haven't done this and I haven't done that and therefore I'm, I'm in the right posture to worship God. No, the one to whom God will look is the one who is of a broken and contrite spirit. And one who has such a spirit, David says in verse 17, God will not despise. God is not looking for fakers in His worship. He's not looking to those who come somehow putting on airs or some facade or pretending about the sins of their hearts. God knows, brother, sister. God sees our hearts. We can come to God in openness and transparency about our sins, and this is His promise. Those who come in such a way, those who come with such a posture of brokenness and penitence over sin, God will receive. That's how He wants us to come. It's, it's like the Lord is saying, or David is saying about the Lord, that, that, that God doesn't just want the forms. He doesn't just want the burnt offerings. He wants us. He wants our hearts. He doesn't just want nice music and a handsome-looking group of people get up on Sunday morning and gather together. He doesn't just want a good homily. Brother, sister, God is after your heart. And He invites each one of us to be open and transparent with Him, to go to Him, to tell it all to Him He already knows. And He wants to invite our brokenness and our contrition over our sins because He wants to restore us and to receive us. Because He is pleased in His love and in His mercy to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In closing, let me say this. Brothers and sisters, we commit in our lives terrible sins. Perhaps all of us are aware of some great sin we've committed in our past, but beyond that, we sin every week. We sin every day. Psalm 51 shows us that we can go to God and we can repent and we can be received and forgiven and that we can be restored. God will receive us if we come to Him in the knowledge of our own sins. I was talking to a very dear pastor friend this week uh, in another area, and um, we are aware in our orbit of relationships and friends, um, brother pastor who had some sin in his life that was recently exposed. And uh, we love this brother, praying for this brother. We both know him, and so we were talking about this together. And my friend said this to me. He said, I really wish brother so-and-so would just be open about his sin. I wish he would just be open. And then he said this. He said, it's not like we would cancel him. You know the idea of cancel culture? You know, what is cancel culture? We see it pretty much every week now. Some, some sin in someone's background, whether it was a photo that was taken of them 30 years ago, 
or an ill-advised tweet when they were in college or something. It gets drudged up, and it's put online or it's put in the headlines or something like that, and then the mob comes, and what happens? Canceled, right? You won't see that person on TV anymore, or that person has to resign their office, or this person's going to get fired or whatever. It's cancel culture. And sometimes the failings that are drudged up can be very egregious and very great. Sometimes they can be very small things. But this is the culture, to find the sin and then to cancel the individual. But my friend was saying, as Christians, we don't do that to one another. And more than that, God doesn't do that to us. When God sees our sins and our failings, and when those very dark things get drudged up, God doesn't cancel us. He didn't cancel David. Instead, through Jesus Christ, He cancels the sin. He cancels our transgressions because the gospel speaks a better word than cancel culture. Our sins can truly be forgiven. Those things that make us so ashamed those things that so overwhelm us, those things that if others among the body of Christ knew them, we just want to hide under the chairs. God sees them, God knows them, and if we come to Him in brokenness and contrition over our sins, He's not going to cancel us. No, He'll receive us through Jesus Christ. If any sins, the Apostle John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Is that good news to this generation, whatever your flaws, whatever your sins, you're done. Not so with the Lord. He's pleased to receive us, to have us, to forgive us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we know that we depend at all times on your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. We have no other place to go in the face of all of our sins. There, there's no cure, there's no remedy we can find elsewhere. There's no way we could ever atone for our own sins. We can look only to the steadfast love and mercy of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. We plead not our righteous record. We plead not the things of service we have done toward you. We plead not our sincerity in wanting to do better. We come to you naked in need of dress. We come to you thirsty in need of a drink. We come to you exposed, lying a mess in all of our sins, asking to be cleansed. Father, we plead only what you have done in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please wash us. Please make us clean. Please, Father, restore us and renew us. We pray that you would give to each one of your people here, each sheep of your flock, a renewed awareness and confidence that though our sins are so many, your mercy is much more, and that if we come to you, you will receive us and you will restore us. Don't allow us, we pray, to be fakers. Don't allow us to hide. May we walk in open-faced fellowship and communion with you. Lord, I imagine there are some here 
who are outside of Christ, who are aware, they are aware even now in their heart of hearts that they have sinned against God, sinned greatly against God. Please assure them and convince them on the basis of the gospel and what you have done in your son, the Lord Jesus, that you are ready to receive them. Lord, please convict them. Cause them to see their sins for what they are and themselves as sinners for who they are and move them to true and genuine repentance that they might experience forgiveness and that they might walk in newness of life, that they might be washed and cleansed of their sins. Please, Lord, in these moments, come and speak to us through this word and through the Lord's table as we come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.